Father, again, we're grateful for a beautiful day and the loveliness of this time of year. We thank you for the work you've given us to do and the way you prosper us in that work. And we thank you now for uh, these moments that we can study together, have conversation together about matters that are of uh, transcendent, impor- transcendent importance and valuable for us to know in order to order our lives by these things. And so we pray you'd bless us to your glory and to our good, and we ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, a couple of brief items before we dive into the material. Uh, First of all, as near as I can tell from the responses, and I didn't get uh, as many responses as I'd hoped about next week, but uh, it looks as if most people can make Tuesday uh, the 26th at 7.30 p.m. Is there anybody on now that is excluded because of that? Can everybody make that Tuesday the 26th? All right, that'd be wonderful. Then, yeah, that, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't make Tuesdays, uh, Tuesday evenings, but I could watch it later. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. That's our scout night. Oh. Um, would the scouts like to join us? <laughs> um, well, the next closest was Monday. Would Monday exclude anybody that's on? It's good for me. It wouldn't work for us, but that's... Uh, oh. Take Will and Kate, leave Steve. <laughs> All right. Well, well we, we, Will just said he could skip one, so... Well, it's a it's by a, a, a significant. Well, it's only what we've got on here now. But in terms of responses, Tuesday was far and away the largest, uh, the one that mo- more most people could make. So I, I, I think I better stick with that. And then uh, Steve, you know, I could if it's more interesting to be on Zoom. I think I could record it on Zoom next time, so that uh, you could sign into the actual deal and not just have audio if that's of any help whatever works for you all right um the second thing (laughs) speaking of audio is that in some way that is beyond me uh i have no recording for last week and that's why it wasn't posted i'm very sorry i i can't i have the most distinct memory of pushing that button before i prayed last week but in any case uh, there was no recording there I am going to um, record the uh, lecture, and we will get it posted finally if some of you uh, wanted to listen to it again. And I'll j- let you know by email when I get that done. It's it's not a very <laughs> enjoyable thing to just sit and talk into a microphone, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll get through it. So uh, with that said, then we're going to take up tonight where we left off, which was we plowed into uh, chapter um, 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, and we looked at the first part of section 1. There we heard about uh, how there is but one God, uh, that we can speak of him because he's spoken of himself. And we noticed in several uh, of the parts of the description things that we wanted to qualify uh, um, somewhat 
And uh, we ended up with um, it being all for his glory, uh, this manifestation of himself, about in the middle of the paragraph. Um, And so we're going to take up from there um, that um, that, uh, what sometimes are called the um, moral attributes of God. Um, And we're going to read of him being most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Um, So what we have here, the section is continuing, but uh, what you can see is uh, the divines have turned to God's doing as opposed to his being. We've heard about who he is, and now we're talking about the way he does because of who he is. And um, the uh, one thing that's interesting in the Shorter Catechism's definition of God, question four, um, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness, um, in his power, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Some people have criticized that definition uh, because something they think is profoundly lacking in it. Uh, anybody from just hearing that notice something you think's missing? I'll, I'll say it again. He's a uh, spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wis- being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Would that be love? Yes, love. I mean, one of the few simple is texts we have uh, in 1 John 4, 8 is, uh, for for God is love. And yet, no mention of uh, love in that definition. Were the divines sleep at the wheel there? What, uh, is there any way we can save them? <laughs> Anybody have an idea on that? Well, you'll notice when they talk about God's doing, uh, they clearly say in, our, in the opening phrase of our uh, section tonight, he's most loving. But why in this more concise statement, no, no love mentioned? Well, we can save them, uh, and that's because goodness is the attribute that expresses itself in love. Love is an expression of an attribute of a person, and goodness is the foundation of it. And, of course, goodness is mentioned there uh, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that goodness manifests itself in a variety of ways. There's benevolence, well-willing toward a person or kindness. Uh, There is uh, long-suffering. There is delight, the love of delight. There are various ways in which that goodness manifests itself. And um, that's the point of it. But so we've now moved from the attributes, goodness being one of them, and we're seeing those attributes in play, and that's uh, why it 
uh, rightly focuses almost immediately on most loving. That is one of the most remarkable ways we come to know of God in his doing. Um, well, uh, this it is this God, uh, so much beyond us, and yet in him we live, move, and have our being, that's the chief end of our existence, uh, and we are called to glorify and to enjoy him forever. And so it's a beautiful paragraph. Uh, then we come to section two, and we uh, can ask, who is there beside God? And the answer from section two is, no one and no thing. Uh, God is all in all. This in my estimation, uh, is a passage that perhaps is the most shockingly uh, but wholesomely humbling declaration of our utter dependence and on the glorious and utter God-exalting uh, 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 and the most, uh, most gloriously and utterly God-exalting section of the entire Confession of Faith. It, it's um, a, a stunning paragraph, uh, as we reflect on it. So, uh, it's said that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself. He is in, uh, he is alone in and unto himself sufficient, standing not in any, not, not in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone, the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath the most sovereign dominion to do over them, by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. Um, a, a, a grand comprehension of the rich teaching of Scripture about uh, the greatness of God. Jonathan Edwards in 1735 preached a sermon on Psalm 4610, uh, the text, Be still and know that I am God. And Edwards captured the sense in that sermon. He captured the sense conveyed by this grand section of the Confession of Faith. Edwards asserted this, the bare consideration that God is God may well be sufficient to still all objections and opposition against the divine sovereign dispensations. If you just reflect on it, God is God. That overcomes every objection and opposition to God's sovereign acting in the world. And I think that that's precisely what's going on here. We're getting a sense in the second section. Here's what it means for God to be God. And if you get this in your mind, uh, there's no talking back to this creator. There's no uh, objecting to his purposes and, and, and so on. It's just magnificent. Now, you see the word at the end, contingent there. 
It's used in an older sense. Um, the uh, uh, It can mean dependent upon, and regularly does for us. Uh, but in an older sense, it means a matter of chance, um, something that's an accident or random. And that's the sense it's w- w- which it's being used here. Nothing to him is a matter of chance, a matter of randomness. There's no accident possible. Um, so um, he's holy. Um, the confession continues in all his counsels and all his works and in all his commands. And due to him is uh, from angels and men and every other creature. Whatsoever worship, service, and obedience, he's pleased to require of them. Here in this conclusion is a a most sweet comfort. This God, so utterly independent and thus answerable to no one, is perfectly answerable to himself. One who is holy in all that he is and is about. And thus he is perfectly worthy to be worshipped and served and obeyed. Not simply because he is the greatest being conceivable for us and thus ought to provoke a sense, as it were, of metaphysical awe, but the beauty of his holiness and his purposes um, is so profoundly uh, good for us and such comfort that it means that uh, when we hear that we're called to worship and serve and obey, uh, it, is a, it is a beautiful call and one that our souls, by God's grace, uh, can answer cheerfully. Um, well, let me stop there with the second section for a moment and see if anybody has any questions about any of the language, the terms, uh, anything that we've expressed. All right. Um, <laughs> why is it that I, all I have to do is say all right, and all of a sudden there are three or four. All right, Jen. I'll be able to um, express this, but um, somewhat recently I had somebody, um, I was trying to explain um, about our relationship with God and um in is it in the Psalms where it says he's our portion and delight? Yes, uh huh. Yes. And something you just quoted. Um and he is um we learn through our maturing in Christ that that's true and we have in a sense lived in a distorted view of the grand way God expects us to live um, in our immaturity. Mm -hmm. And because we're so focused on this world, if I could just have this, if I could just have this, you know, this other thing, Mm -hmm. then I'd be happy with the way God's treating me. (laughs) And um, so when I was trying to explain this to somebody about him being 
our portion and delight, they said, so what's the point of having a family? What's the point of having good Christian community? What's the point of wanting a godly husband? Um, is that just nothing? So can you um, explain the way the good things that God provides for us in the world with his being our ultimate? <laughs> Am I... Yes, sure. Think well, anything yeah, the um, the first thing is to say that um, the the way we receive all of the things you've described is as gifts from God, displaying His goodness to us, and that that ought to be the first sense we have about them. Uh, it's not that it's mine, it's not that it delights me, but it's that my Heavenly Father has given me this good gift in mm-hmm. order for me to take delight in Him and know more of His goodness. Mm-hmm. That, that's the primary dynamic that's going on there. So that when my Father, in His wisdom, takes some of those things away, Right. I can be confident it's no diminution of his goodness, but rather it is his wisdom that for this season and for such and such a reason, it's not for me to have now. So that he is my portion and delight above all. He is my portion and delight when he provides for me something that his wisdom uh, says is good for me now. And he's still my portion and delight when he takes that away. Mm-hmm. Does that help to... Um, in other words, there's no... Um, uh, we talk about God's glory and our good. Mm-hmm. Uh, those aren't two competing systems. Um God's glory is manifested in the world in his goodness toward his children. Mm-hmm. And the, so they, they're never at odds. But that teaches us that um, he's glorified in me uh, holding on to his goodness regardless of what my outward circumstances are. Um, right. I think that's where the struggle is when the outward circumstances. Right don't match up to what our vision of them should be. Right, that's right. Okay. That's right. Thanks. All right, Paul, Balzarek. Uh, I just was, um, it says to him is due from angels and men and every other creature uh, whatsoever worship. By every other creature, I guess, you know, I was first thinking of, of rational beings, but I don't think there are other rational beings besides angels and men. <laughs> right. So I assume they're just trying to be inclusive and in adding the rocks and the trees and every all the other created items. Yeah, I, I and I think remember it's um, um, it's whatsoever. Uh, oh, let me get my text here. It's. Um, 
What, what service or obedience? So they're not all yeah. at the same level. There may not be any worship in an intelligent sense, but the the fish in the sea serve the God who made them in some I think that's probably what's in view. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. All right, on to the third section. Uh, we come to the doctrine of the Trinity and the unity of the Godhead. There be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, these are uh, these qualifiers identifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are taken from Scripture. Uh, they're very tersely put, and there are hundreds of years of church history and theology and controversy <laughs> behind each word in that little tiny paragraph. Um, but um, clearly... Um, the language they're using is the language of the most ancient and universally accepted statement of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, found in the Creed of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Uh, the confession, the divines here are clearly dependent upon that uh, creed and tradition, and they're not trying to add anything to it or take away anything from it. It's a simple statement of Christian orthodoxy as it was broadly confessed at that time. I'll just say this um, to remind you, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity springs from the facts of Scripture. Uh, that is to say, it's not taught in a systematic pre presentation, but it is a, as a necessary conclusion from the facts that are set forth in the New Testament. Um, the New Testament historians report certain events, circumstances, and persons, and from the revelatory teaching that, uh, humanly speaking, grew out of those facts. So Jesus, who prayed to his Father and taught his disciples to do the same, convinced them that he was personally divine and belief in his divinity and the rightness of offering him worship and prayer is basic to the New Testament faith. Um, Jesus said he would send another paraclete, another helper, he having been the first one, uh, a helper who is a counselor, advocate, helper, uh, comforter, ally, supporter. This um, is the Holy Spirit uh, recognized as a, a third divine person he can be lied to, and this is to lie to God, as Peter said. Uh, so uh, this is a historic formulation of the doctrine that grows out of the facts of the New Testament, the church has confessed. It seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery. It is the way Packer put it. it. It seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery, not to explain it. That's beyond us. Uh, and it confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It's not easy, but it's true. I think that that closing statement from Dr. Packer is uh, priceless. 
Um, well, any question or comment or concern uh, about um, that third section? You may know that the church is split east and west uh, because of the last um, clause in that sentence. Uh, the Eastern Church does not believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, but rather proceeds from the Father only. And uh, the uh, that was one of the first great divisions of the Christian Church was over that uh, filioque clause, uh, the Latin word meaning and the Son, filioque, the introduction of that by the Western Church um, uh, caused the Eastern Church to split. Among other things, it was a highly politicized circumstance, but that was the at least the presenting cause for the division, and it's never been healed. Yes? Dave, question. Uh, what, do we, what do we make of the word substance, of one substance? Uh, the... Um, they're tr trying to, you may know that uh, the problem with homoousia and homoousion in the Latin, uh, the one is of like substance, the other is of same substance. Earlier on, orthodoxy was committed to the idea it was of like substance because of the way the controversy was proceeding. But people began to use the word like to introduce too much of a distinction between the persons. And so substance, uh, they switch to uh, same substance in order to insist that the godness of God belongs to each person of the Trinity equally, fully, completely. That's the notion of it. Does that help? Thank you. Any other uh, questions, comments on that? All right. Uh, chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. Um, here the divine start off um, by uh, giving us a, a pretty much a definition of the decree. It's from, uh, and, and decree can it sound highfalutin. It just means plan or purpose it, of God's eternal purpose or God's eternal plan. And um, they note that it is from all eternity, uh, and by that they mean from before time even began. Um, and they note that it has to do uh, only with God himself, uh, that is, his wise and holy counsel leads him freely, no constraints whatsoever of any kind other than who he is. Um, freely, he unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Moment by moment, as we uh, experience reality this evening, right now, we are experiencing the unfolding 
of God's eternal decree, his purpose. Um, the, uh, um, we can't have any knowledge of that decree of ourselves. The secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. But the, the fact is, that decree is being revealed moment by moment. We couldn't penetrate it without God's willingness, but we are seeing that decree revealed in everything that comes to pass. Uh, that's a, a remarkable um, thing to contemplate, and often we don't. Um, I think in part uh, we end up being somewhat deistic um, in our commonplace sensibilities in life. We, we think that God wound up the universe and now he's off somewhere else enjoying himself or the, the clockmaker who winds up the clock and the, the clock just goes on and on and on. But that's not Scripture's teaching. The scripture's teaching is God is intimately involved in the world. He is but not only transcendent, he's imminent. Intimately involved in the world, and all that's coming to pass is the fruition of his eternal plan. Um, the, uh, now there are... So, um, because we tend to, especially in... In the modern period, I think even Orthodox Christians have tended to be somewhat deistic in their sensibilities. And I think it was because of that that the charismatic movement came out of nowhere uh, uh, in the 60s and uh, had a powerful effect because people had a deep longing to have some sense of the supernatural. And they figured they had to get it by ha having miracles take place again. But what they failed to see is that, in fact, they were engaged with the living God every moment of their lives, seeing his purposes worked out in everything that comes to pass, everything he does toward them. The, the miracle is not any more significant in terms of God being engaged in the world than providence. The only thing about the miracle is that it's because it's outside of the normal course of providence, it draws our attention to God intervening in some way. But real biblical piety lives in a world infused with God and his purposes. And our eyes are open to see that in the world around us. And but it, it does take nurturing that sensibility. And I think that um, that's one of the things that's so important about the doctrine of the decree. Now, there are three critical qualifications that the divines have for us. One, they say that uh, though he ordains everything that comes to pass, it doesn't make him the author of sin. And I'll just comment uh, on this, uh, because in one sense, uh, yes, God is the author of sin. He's the author of sins. See, we're using a metaphor here, and you have to be careful. What, what is an author? Well, at least in one sense, the author is the one who's telling the story. 
Well, they've just insisted that God's telling the story. The whole, everything that comes to pass is nothing other than God telling his story. The, the, uh, um, his purpose. Um, but it, they're insisting he is not the author in the sense of the responsible doer of sin. That's the sense in which they're wanting to qualify. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but not in such a way that he is the responsible doer of sin. And if I had to criticize the divines, I'd have said, get rid of the metaphor and be more prosaic at this point. Um, The second qualification, there's no violence done to the will of the creature. Uh, Now, what does violence mean there? Uh, again, I think a little more prosaic might have helped. It means that no one is forced against their will or compelled against their own purpose to do anything. But rather, the human will, and we're going to, one of the beauties of this confession is it's the only one I know of that has a whole section on uh, the freedom of the will, and they're going to uh, give it a more a profound exposition later on. But the point they're saying here in anticipation of that is that nothing about the decree means that creatures can't do as they please and that's the way God made them. Um, the, uh, and then the third qualification is the nature of secondary causes is not undermined by this. It's not as if because God's purpose is only point by point here that uh, there are no other causes at work, but rather his very purpose is that causes have efficacy, second causes have efficacy. And that's part of the way his purposes are, are worked out is because he's created a world where secondary causes have an efficacy in terms of producing what comes to pass. Uh, and so, so far from undermining secondary causes, uh, the, the divines say, uh, on the contrary, um, the, uh, they're established. In other words, God not only appoints the ends, but he appoints all of the means that bring those ends to pass and the character of those means. God appoints not only the ends, but the means also, and that makes the means Necessary, not unnecessary. Um, so those qualifications were uh, on each one of those. We're going to come back to them at various points in the confession. But let me pause there for a moment and see if uh, a- anyone has a question about the decree. Yes, please. So, uh, Dave, um, would you say that all of his decrees were made? Um, uh, from all eternity, I, I guess part of what I'm leading up to is: um, Would you take a superlapsarian point of view? Uh, I don't. Um, the um, and uh, what I would say is this, and in fact, we're going to come to uh, introduce this element um, in just a minute when. Uh, we get into the sec- next section, but uh, we can. I can anticipate a little bit here. I would say that, uh, for example, we're going to talk about 
his decree with respect to salvation and uh, the the question of inference superlapsarianism is God in it's in the ordering of his decrees did God decree the salvation of a person as it were abstractly considered and then decree the means to that salvation the fall and falling into sin and then decree the means for overcoming that or did God have in mind a fallen person who had uh, rebelled and it was salvation for a fallen person that's the infralapsarian view. You have the superlapsarian view is the decree of salvation is antecedent to everything. The infralapsarian view is that the fall, lapsus, is subordinated uh, or, or, or co- comes before the decree of salvation. Um, and um, Francis Turton, who's uh, I think one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, uh, when he gets to discussing inference superlapsarianism, he says, look, who are we to think we can have a discussion about the order of things in God's mind? He says it's a question that sh- should never have been raised. But having been raised, the answer is infralapsarianism. <laughs> and I think Turton uh, is a wise counselor there. And, and the reason... I agree with him. It's because Scripture never thinks of damnation as anything other than the justice of God against sinners. It's impossible to contemplate a decree of damnation scripturally apart from the person being worthy of that decree having uh, rebelled against him. So that's why I think that... So, you know, the... the, the um, uh, Superlapsarian folk uh, say gravitate towards Roman, Roman 9. Does God not have the right to make out of the same lump vessels fitted destruction, vessels fitted for glory? And I say to that... Uh, Yes, it is the same lump, not lump of abstract human beings so considered, but lap, uh, lump of dead trespassing sinners of, with no help except for God in the world in his mercy. Um, and so that's the lump. And it's by getting that metaphor wrong, I think, that people go wrong on that subject. Uh, I, I, I think it's Augustine's phrase that the decree to election is with respect to a mass of perishing people. And, and so, I, anyway, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else on? Uh, all right, let's press on to section two. Although God knows whatsoever can, or excuse me, may or can, 
come to pass on all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass on some such upon such conditions. Here, right away, the divines are engaging in controversy uh, on the decree. And, of course, this is, uh, I think, what Chad said. We're in the really deep waters of theology here in this commentary. Um, and that was an understatement. Um, the, uh, there are some who wanted to avoid the difficulty of the doctrine of the decree by saying something like this. God, in the first instance, has foreknowledge of everything that's going to come to pass. And so what God does is he looks out into the future and he sees who's going to exercise faith. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, and see, this was the way they thought we could have uh, human will engaged in such a way that there's no question about it being an autonomous exercise. He sees that they'll have faith, which is freely exercised, and he he thus orders his decree based on that foreknowledge. Um, the uh, the um, this uh, paragraph absolutely cuts the nerve of that uh, kind of position, as Edwards used to say. Uh, he not only dug it out by, it was said of Edwards, that he not only dug it out by the roots, but cemented over the place where it stood, so nothing could ever grow there again. (laughs) And um, the point that the divines are making is this, that apart from the decree, there's nothing to see. Strictly speaking, there's no such thing as foreknowledge. If God looks out into what's going to happen Apart from his decree, there's nothing to see. (laughs) It's entirely a a trick of our finitude that we use language this way. God foreknows because he knows his own mind. He knows what he has appointed, and that's the only sense in which he has foreknowledge. Um, The... uh, and Chad, in his commentary, Chad's a very uh, fair-minded fellow. He wants to, and uh, but he nicely notes that although there seems like there's a ferocious controversy between uh, Reformed folk and uh, Arminians on this, uh, he, he notices, uh, as others have, that nobody's an Arminian when he prays or when he sings God's praises. Uh, No, they're all Calvinists on their knees with their hymn books. That's why we've got so many Arminians who've written hymns for this Sunday. We're going to sing And Can It Be, a Wesley hymn. And what does it say? The light went forth, my chains fell off, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's as Calvinistic a proposition as you could find in a hymn. Uh, we were in chains, and the chains had to fall off because before we would be going anywhere. Um, so, um, but but the point is, uh, the Bible so clearly teaches the, this subject that it finally undermines 
scripture if you're not willing to embrace this, however difficult it is. Um, and that's why the divines, straight out of the gate, wanted to shut off in the second section one of the chief ways in which people have tried to uh, avoid scripture's teaching. Any, anybody on that one? All right, uh, three. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined uh, to everlasting life and others for ordained to everlasting death. Uh, two final outcomes, life unending and death unending. Um, and here, uh, Proverbs 16, 4 is aptly quoted, the Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Um, the crucial point, and this is what I was uh, wanting to uh, say to Tony, uh, the crucial point here is that in Adam all deserve death. It is from a mass of perishing people that God chooses some for life. No one deserves this kindness, and no one is wronged if they get what they deserve but God is glorified in the both of them. Just one sentence, but uh, that comment to help uh, make it clear. Anybody a question on that? All right, these men and angels thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, uh, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Now here they're um, simply showing the implications of what they've already said. They're making it plain. They don't want anybody to not get the full force of it. But nothing here is new, given what they've already said. Um, and uh, the, but Chad, I think in this section, does a wonderful job capturing the emphasis of both the scripture and the confession. These things are being spelled out this way with principally one thought in mind. The benefit to believers in this fallen and broken world to know these things. Um, Chad puts it this way, God never sets his love on someone only to abandon him or her later. Our salvation is secure. That's what these points are about. That's what they're driving at principally in trying to have us understand them. Uh, fifth, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal, eternal and immutable purpose and secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or in any, or, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto 
all to the praise of his glorious grace. Nothing whatsoever in us qualifies us for being uh, um, called to salvation from our sins in Christ. Nothing whatsoever. Everything that would qualify me for perishing forever, I share with every other fallen person in Adam. And nothing about me distinguishes me in any way that would lead God in his mercy to appoint me to be united to his son. All it is of grace, nothing of us. Um, the, uh, and the scripture couldn't be more uh, poignant on this uh, point. He chose us uh, before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians, we learn, uh, and it was purely according to his purpose, his own good pleasure, who, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In Titus, or 1 Timothy uh, 1.9, we're saved, called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. And of course, the famous Ephesians 2 passage, we're saved by grace, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, this fifth paragraph, it, um, again, makes the idea of boasting uh, impossible and captures beautifully the glory of the gospel. Sixthly, um, as God has appointed the elect glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, and are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. There's no one who is being left in their sins. The theological term typically is reprobate. There's no one left in their sins who is ever called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. But everyone who has any experience of any of those things will be kept according to the power of God through faith unto salvation. Uh, here we're back to ends and means. God appoints not only the ends, but he appoints the means. And remember, those secondary causes, so far from being undone, are most necessary. Um, and and he, here what we see is that the means that God has appointed to salvation are an unbroken and unbreakable chain of cause and effect. His purposes through those means will be fulfilled. As Paul preached to the Thessalonians, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us, that whether we wake or whether we are asleep, we should live together with him. And you recall that extraordinary passage at the end of Romans 8. Um, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Seven, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth. For the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. That is, I think, as I've already intimated uh, when, I was, when Tony and I were talking earlier, uh, n- notice, not ordain them to dishonor and wrath for his pleasure, but for their sin. Not to the praise of his glorious power, but to the praise of his glorious justice. Those are absolutely crucial to understanding uh, the Reformed doctrine. Let me uh, pause there for a minute and see if you have questions, uh, comments, concerns, uh, terms you don't get, um, anything you'd like to raise. Well, let's conclude this section then. Uh, This is, um, uh, the the confession is um, uh, highly concerned to get in the clearest, plainest language the most essential truths of the gospel uh, in a form uh, that's accessible. But every once in a while, you, you see them Uh, their pastoral heart really come forward. All of it's pastoral in the sense that the the, uh, truth is unto godliness and they want to make the truth as plain as possible. But in this concluding section, it's very tender. They speak of this as the high mystery of predestination. And uh, again, that's certainly true. Um, uh, To be handled with special prudence and care. Uh, you need to have a tenderness and a, a, a concern about it, an acknowledgement uh, that it's a hard thing. Um, so what's the per- point of it? That people attending to the will of God revealed in the word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel.
How is this doctrine to be used? Well, by attending to this word, believers are to find assurance of their salvation. What's the practical piety that flows from such assurance? Two things are noticed. Praise, reverence, and admiration of God. Humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel. That's what one should be looking for in attending to the doctrine of the decrees, not in philosophical speculation, not in uh, uh, um, logical niceties, attending to that word to find assurance of their election. And the character, if it makes one arrogant, if it makes one... uh, uh, um, interest in only in rational argumentation. If it, uh, if it does, if it makes one suspicious of God, no, no, no. Reverence and admiration ought to be the fruit of this in the life of one who really understands the doctrine. And if it's not there, then there's something wrong with the understanding of the doctrine. And it ought to lead to humility and diligence. This is so. People say, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why do this or that or the other thing? The divine's answer, if God is not sovereign, why pray? If God is not sovereign, why should I enter into the battle with sin when I know I'm incompetent with respect to it? I can have humility and diligence and consolation at the same time in light of these truths. And that that trinity is a holy trinity. Um, diligence sometimes leads you to be proud, but you know that your diligence is growing out of your dependence upon God, not on yourself. You're humbled by that. And at the same time, you find a deep consolation in the uh, difficulty of living in a fallen world. Well, that's chapter three then. Uh, the decrees of God. Anybody a final word on that? Um, oh, uh, <laughs> we've got two minutes. <laughs> um, I'm tempted to jump on this into this. Um, let me let me just start. And then I'll stay on if you have other questions. This is of creation. Uh, first section, it, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. We're going to come back to this next time because uh, the last part is going to require a little more discussion. But let me introduce uh, the, the point this way. Um, first, they emphasize that it's the triune God who creates. Uh, and uh, even though the reality of that does not shine in the scripture until recreation, 
But what we're going to see by the time of the New Testament is the doctrine of the Trinity is behind the original creation as well as recreation, that it's the triune God who's working out his purposes. Uh, and it greatly enriches our understanding of things that were dark otherwise. Um, the second thing is that um, the importance of creation and understanding Christianity can't be diminished. Um, Dr. Schaefer once said that if he had 45 minutes on a plane to talk to somebody about Christianity, uh, he would take 40 minutes on the doctrine of creation and five minutes on the gospel. Um, that's how important the doctrine of creation is, that I am a creature made in the image of God, uh, the image of a God who's an all-sufficient creator, dependent upon nothing. Those truths are so absolutely essential to understanding the gospel that um, uh, you can't, almost you can't overestimate that. And the unhappy thing is, that in the modern period, the last uh, clause, ne next to the last clause, is what most people think of when they talk of, think about Christianity and uh, creation. They think of the days, and so we're going to have to come back to the days. But the, the days is the least important of all of the things that have to do with creation. Uh, but they're important, and we, we've got to address that. But let, let me conclude with this. Um, why did God create? He wanted to manifest the glory of his power, wisdom, and goodness. Here's a great thing to keep in mind. In all of our engagement with the created order, we should try to have an eye toward it conveying to us the power, the wisdom, and the goodness of God. Here would be... a. a a never-failing, never-ending means of grace. The whole created order becomes sacramental in that sense. It conveys to us the power, the wisdom, and the goodness of God. And it's certainly worth the while to uh, meditate on that order and to use creation in that way to enrich your spiritual life. All right. Question, comment? Uh, concern? It's so easy to forget how amazing the confession of faith is. Mm. It's just um, you think that you've studied it and you remember what it's like and then you pick it up again and it's just amazingly encouraging and full and thanks for all your teaching on this. Wonderful. Thanks, Paul. Um... Well, yes, it really is. And uh, so everyone recall, uh, we are meeting next on Tuesday, um, April 26th. Tuesday, April 26th. I'll send, there'll be something in the program on Sunday morning. Uh, actually, it won't be in the program, but I'll be 
going over the announcement since Paul's on vacation, so I'll remind you then. And then uh, I'll also send out um, the email early, maybe on Monday, so that you can be reminded. Tuesday, the 26th at 7.30 p.m. I look forward to being with you again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these extraordinary things that we have been speaking of this evening, the mysteries of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the uh, doctrine of the decrees, the doctrine of creation from nothing. And uh, we find that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we can think your thoughts after you, that we can know something of these things that would be utterly beyond us and that the knowledge is uh, for our good, that it's profitable uh, and that equips us to love you and serve you in this world. Uh, may this evening be used by you to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.